Hello again. Welcome to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. I'm so glad to be back with you after taking a break last week with some vacation with our family. I hope you got a chance to listen to our last podcast two weeks ago that was basically a double podcast, uh, nearly an hour long, I think, and I did that by design. But I want to go back into the subject that I was dealing with two weeks ago, and that is this debate about the English versions of the Bible. Again, I mentioned in our first uh, episode last time about how uh, much controversy and division, uh, sadly, has arisen because of this issue, and I want to make sure I try to present a balanced view. Again, I want to emphasize that I have good friends and people that I respect, preachers that I listen to and read and and watch and use their materials who do not use the King James Version uh, or the authorized version like I do. And so I do not make this a litmus test of someone's salvation or someone's sanctification, someone's usefulness or calling or fruitfulness in ministry. Uh, But I do think that since every church as an assembly of believers has to be unified, that it is important that each church has a standard uh, for the Bible. Uh, And I'll bring that up maybe in some concluding remarks at the end in in another episode. But I want to pick up where I left off last time. After giving some introductory remarks, I started to get into some of what I would call the more detailed reasons why I still, after much study and and, and consultation uh, and prayer, of course, and seeking the Lord, I've still uh, decided to stay with the authorized version. Again, I need to uh, explain why I've chosen that, and so that's why I'm going further into detail. We'll take at least this program and one more, maybe even more, to finalize uh, the thoughts on this, but Uh, I want to pick up where I left off. I was talking about at the end of the previous episode and and one of the first points in the main body of my reasoning for staying with the King James, I mentioned the translation technique used uh, by the King James translators back in the 1600s from 1604 to 1611 when they finished the translation versus uh, the technique used by many of the popular modern versions today. Uh, And let me repeat, those techniques are either formal equivalency, which seeks to try to, as closely as possible, take from the original language to the uh, new language it's being translated into, word for word, keeping with the uh, the genders, the case, the verbal, uh, verb tenses, and so on. Uh, but then the other technique used uh, often in modern translations is called dynamic equivalency, which seeks to do more of a thought process uh, from thought to word instead of word for word. In other words, uh, the translator is seeking to discover what God was trying to impart or say uh, in his translation. Now, again, I'm not against all dynamic equivalency. Even the King James, the authorized version, has some dynamic equivalency, I agree. But uh, the literary license, if you will, that is used by many of the modern versions uh, in, in the dynamic equivalency technique, I think is, is over the top. Uh, and too often, what people are getting when they read a modern version is a, an interpretation of the text from the translator instead of a translation strictly from the original language to, uh, to English. 
So that point being made, let me go on to number two, and that is it closely uh, comes on the heels of that first uh, point we, we talked about with translation technique, and that is the manuscripts used for translation. Now, this is a very deep subject. In fact, nearly every one of these subjects I'm going to bring up could deserve several podcasts, and, and many men have written extensively about these subjects. So I'm not trying to, to give you every detail. I'm trying to just give you a summary of why I believe uh, that the authorized version uh, is the best version to use in English based on these premises, the technique and now the manuscripts themselves. Let me try to make this as clear and concise as I can. Uh, there exist in our uh, extant uh, discoveries over the last, oh, thousand years or more uh, in museums and other places in the world uh, about somewhere in the area of 55 to 6,000 uh, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and uh, thousands, of course, of other languages of the New Testament. I keep mentioning, I've mentioned the New Testament only because the Old Testament text, commonly referred to as the Masoretic text of the Hebrew language, there evidently was a little bit of Aramaic found in books such as Daniel a little bit later in the in the canon order, but most of the Old Testament was written in what we call the Masoretic Hebrew text. The Masoretes were the copyists, the, the men who wrote down the text by hand, actually. And they did such a wonderful job. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery just of the last century to verify how accurately they translated, uh, or I should say copied is a better word for it, copied the Hebrew text. So there's not as much debate on the authenticity and validity of the Old Testament text as there is the new. So I'm going to primarily concentrate my thinking on the, on the manuscript evidence to the Greek New Testament because, again, in the New Testament era, from the time of the first century onward, we had Gentiles primarily. There was definitely Jews involved, all the original writers of the New Testament, probably even including Luke, though he would be the one exception that's debated. Uh, all the other New Testament writers were Jewish. But we do understand that after the first century, many believers were Gentiles, and so it fell into Gentile hands to continue the, the process of copying from the originals. Now, just to understand some terminology, the originals of the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation are called the autographs. That's the original writing where God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired the writer to write exactly what he wanted to give us in that book that makes up one and then all of the 66 books of the Holy Scripture. Um, now, the copies of the originals are called manuscripts. And these manuscripts, as we're saying, become a, a pretty important uh, part of our decision on what version of the Bible we're going to use. Because every English Bible, is, as well as any uh, translation in other languages around the world today, uh, are taken, are supposed to be taken from the Hebrew and the Greek. Okay, And in this case, we'll, we'll settle and talk a lot about the Greek. Uh, and so our authorized version that I use, and then the modern versions, the popular ones, even the most conservative ones, and, and I respect them, and I'll talk mostly about 
for instance, the English Standard Version, the ESV, the New, uh, New American Standard uh, Bible, the NASB, the uh, New International Version, and then the New King James, the NKJV. Um, all of these, of course, are translated from uh, the Greek in our New Testament, and of course the Hebrew and the Old. Uh, so having that in mind, we, we know there was there is in, in existence today almost 6,000, I'm going to use rough numbers here, it's not exact, but it's almost 6,000 Greek uh, copies or manuscripts of the original 27 books of the New Testament. Now, the scholars and the the, the translators, as they sat down to translate their English Bibles, of course, took from that, and that's why we have uh, an English copy. And the reason we have differences in the King James, or authorized, versus the other modern versions is not simply a change in language. Now, I know there was a change in language, and definitely the new versions drop out the ETHs and the arts and the thous and the yees and so on. Uh, we understand that. But that's not all of the changes. Uh, the reason the modern versions, for instance, if you compare the New International Version, the NIV, which for many years, since 1970 when it was first translated, was the most popular English version for at least a couple decades, I would imagine. Uh, you, if you compare the NIV with the authorized King James, you'll find out that there's 20 entire missing verses uh, from the text. Now, again, we have to decide whether we think they should be there or should not be there. I'll get into that later, but I'm simply saying that there there is a difference. Now, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, and I hope I, I won't be, and I hope I can explain myself here. I told you in the first episode that there is only about 2% difference between the text of the King James and of the modern versions, okay? Uh, and so when I'm talking to an unsaved person, whoever might bring that issue up, I do try to downplay that 2% to tell them, hey, there's no major doctrine changed in any of the modern versions, and the differences only amount to less than 2% of the text. And that's true, and that is a valid point to make. But now I'm taking the other side of this among brethren, among Christians, and in a church setting to say that the 2% does make a difference. And part of the 20 missing verses uh, in the NIV or those that are questioned in the other modern versions. Let me explain what I mean. If you're using a modern version right now, you have one maybe in front of you, you can look at uh, some verses such as Matthew 18.11, Mark 16.9-20, John 7.53-8.11, Acts 8.37, and 1 John 5.7 uh, to give you an example of some of these missing verses where in, the, in many of the new versions, they will have a footnote at the bottom or somewhere in, on the page telling you that uh, some manuscripts, and many times it'll give you a phrase that says older manuscripts, and I'll get into that later. I think that's rather a deceptive statement, but they'll say older manuscripts or some manuscripts, MSS, it'll, that stands for manuscripts, do not contain this verse, okay? Um, I have a problem with that whole mentality to begin with, questioning if it should be or should not be in the Bible. Uh, we have to admit, even modern proponents of these modern uh, versions will have to admit that in the RSV, which was the first modern English version after the King James, it was uh, translated in 1881, um, it 
literally took out many of these verses uh, with without any explanation. And then later, the subsequent new versions, like the American Standard, then the New American Standard, and so on, uh, put footnotes or brackets around these questioned or debated passages, uh, and 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 so they were trying to show that some t- uh, manuscripts did not have them, some did, and and I have a problem with the with the doubting of that to begin with, and I'll get to my point on that later when I talk more about inspiration and preservation, which is such a key issue. But back to manuscript evidence itself. Um, back to the idea now, if we have some 6,000 Greek manuscripts, okay, and I'm going to simplify this, and, and I know it'll sound oversimplified. Uh, I'm not trying to be, but I think from what I've studied and all the information I've read over the years, I've been in ministry for 35 years plus now, and I have uh, probably 40 or 50 books on this King James and textual issue, um, I think it could be summed up basically this way. There's two families of manuscripts. The overwhelming majority of manuscripts can be put into one category, and it's named by various titles, the majority text, uh, the Byzantine text, the, uh, uh, the, the most popular one uh, that we know of now is called the Texas Receptus or the Received Text. And basically, that was a name given to a family of manuscripts that was used by the King James translators in 1604 to 1611 to give us our King James New Testament. Um, those manuscripts make up a overwhelming majority of existing manuscripts. In other words, they agree alike or look alike and are very similar. They're not exact. I agree. There are some variations in, in word order, in punctuation, in spelling, and, and so forth, and notations that could be found in certain manuscripts. But most agree, most scholars would say, that the overwhelming majority of manuscript evidence uh, would go into this family of the traditional Byzantine uh, received text known as the Texas Receptus. Now, there's then a smaller uh, number, a very small number, frankly, uh, of manuscripts uh, that have been discovered later in time that have now become known as the critical text or the eclectic text. It's a group of manuscripts primarily based on two, uh, I think, pro-Catholic manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, uh, and there's a few others. They, They are more known as the Alexandrian text, uh, found primarily in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, this text, uh, which makes up a small group of manuscripts, does not agree with the majority or received text or Texas Receptus um, in many places. And that's why you have 20 missing verses in the NIV and, and these verses and many, many words, phrases uh, that are left out. Uh, in the modern versions, and this makes up the 2% difference that we said between the modern versions and the King James. Now, here's the question, and here's the the real argument. Do we believe, or should we believe, that God's Word has been preserved and is best found in the majority text, or Texas Receptus, that becomes the basis of the King James Version, or should we say that the better text family, or the ones that we would believe God preserved and used to continue his word, should be found in the newer text. Now, they're given several texts, uh, or n- names to these texts, 
primarily, and I'm trying to be concise and not get into all the details, but it's basically called the Nestle Allen text uh, or the uh, United Bible Society text. These are different men and groups that took uh, some of the more recently discovered texts like Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, Aleph and B, they, they put these names on them, uh, and came up with what they believe is a better text. Now, that's their opinion, and we're all entitled to our opinion. I personally do not believe that the modern textual uh, basis is superior to the King James uh, text of the Texas Receptus in our New Testament. I believe manuscript evidence would more dominantly support that text used by the King James, and I simply believe that that text is a better text. It's a fuller text, that's true. It's longer. The Nestle Allen, or more modern critical text, is shorter. That's the, thus, you get the shorter uh, New Testament with the 20 missing verses and many, many, many words that are missing and so on. Um, so, just to sum up this point, and I don't want to belabor it too long, but just to say that I simply believe that the manuscript evidence behind the King James, the Texas Receptus in the Greek, and even the Masoretic text that is, is dominantly, was, was only used really by the King James translators, is the right text to use, okay? And so this is, again, supporting my reasoning. As I have looked at these modern uh, versions and the text they have come from, I'm not convinced that we should abandon the text that, that the King James used uh, in favor of these so-called more scholarly, more uh, recently found text. Uh, than, than what was translated from the King James over 400 years ago. And some more points that I'll make as I go along, especially the concluding points I'm going to make, and that'll be at least another episode or two ahead. I think I'll tie that back in. All right, well, I want to move on. Let me go on to the, the, the men behind the translation itself. Now, I, I'm not going to try to throw stones at any, uh, any modern... Uh, conservative scholar. I, I said in the first program that I have great respect for the men who translated the New King James, the NASB, the ESV. I do not think they were conspiratorial, satanic uh, people who were trying to undermine Christianity, and so I'm not going to uh, try to cast doubt upon them or demean or under uh, undermine their credibility as, as scholars, as translators, uh, many of them I don't even know. I've learned a little bit from reading about who did these translations, but I do know enough about the King James translators that I can make a point here about them. And that is, uh, understand that the King James translators who were simply authorized by King James, it's called King James only because he authorized the translation. He had nothing to do with the translation. He didn't edit it. He didn't examine it. He didn't put his two cents into certain wordings or anything of the case. He simply, at a time when, when printing the Bible uh, or coming up with a translation of the Bible on your own could cost your life because there was not religious freedom back in that day, uh, he only authorized these scholars of his day to, to get together and come up with a new English translation. Now, it was not the first, just a little brief history we know that the English Bible really has its first, uh, at least complete, um, uh, translation in, by a man named John Wycliffe 
1384, John Wycliffe, who was a great man, he was a former Catholic priest, ended up coming out of Catholicism like many of the reformers later would do, and he had a burden to give the people uh, of his day the word of God in the Anglo-Saxon or the early English, and he did that. Now, it was not a really good translation because all he had was the Latin Vulgate of the Catholic Church to translate from, but he did his best, and that was what we call the first English version. But uh, when you get to the major uh, translation of the English Bible was by a great man named William Tyndale. William Tyndale is one of the heroes of the English Bible. Even modern uh, version proponents would, would herald William Tyndale as a great scholar and a great hero of our uh, Bible history. And he translated the, the English Bible into what would then at his day be a more modernized form of English, still not modern to how we would think of it, but modern to his day. And by 1525, uh, gave us the first printed, on a printing press, the first printed English New Testament. And it was taken from this Texas Receptus. Uh, he himself, William Tyndale, was a great linguist and studied under a man named Decidius Erasmus. Erasmus was the great Greek scholar of the early 1500s in England and, and in Europe. And uh, it was Erasmus who gave us uh, a Greek text, or didn't give it to us, of course, in the same way that God inspired the originals, but uh, the Greek text was dormant. It was not used except for the Byzantine churches in that part of the world. And it came into Europe uh, after the, the fall of the uh, the, audio, or the, the rise of the Ottoman Empire and the escape of the manuscripts to the West and to Europe, uh, and then the invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg in uh, about 1454 or so, uh, that all uh, added to the, the interest in the original uh, Greek New Testament, not the Latin Vulgate of the Catholic system that so many uh, knew and thought that was the only Bible that there was, but they saw when they began to read the, the Greek uh, New Testaments that were brought into Europe that there were some differences, and those differences were important. Well, anyway, Tyndale then gave us uh, the first printed Greek text, uh, our, our English Bible from the right Greek text, let me get my wording right, uh, in 1525. Now, from 1525 to the King James translators who completed their work in 1611, there were several other English versions that were standardizing and popularizing the English language. Uh, there was the Bishop's Bible. There was the Coverdale Bible. There was the, uh, the Geneva Bible and, and several others. I'm not going to exhaust on the names of all of them, but there were several. But they all led up to the King James. And the reason the King James really it becomes the epitome or the apex of all those versions leading up to it is that those scholars, these 54 men that were commissioned by King James, they took all the work of those previous men, like William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale after him and some of the other scholars leading up to that time, and then took from them and, and completed a translation to perfect, to, to give a more uh, accurate translation in English. Now, these 54 men, I don't want to get into a lot of detail. There's some wonderful books written about these men. Uh, they were great linguists, every one of them, in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Uh, and they did their translation work over a period of seven years in a 
in a very balanced and, and, and uh, checks and balance system or way. Uh, they translated in groups at the three major universities uh, in, uh, in England at that time, Westminster, uh, Cambridge, and Oxford. And as they would translate, they would reread and, and re-examine each other's translations uh, for, for corrections and for errors. Now, um, that is an important point to make because translation is not easy work, and especially taking it from languages that had been dormant for many years and were not used that exclusively at the time, it did take some, some, some great scholars and men of, of great intellect to do this. But the way that the King James translators produced uh, the authorized version is, to me, unequaled in English uh, version history. Uh, these 54 men, all of which were great, great linguists of their day, no one can deny that, and the, the format they used of checks and balances and corrections and, and re-examination took seven years to do it, uh, I think it's been unequaled. Now... Again, there are some good uh, scholars today, and I'm not discounting all of them. I do say that there are some uh, associated with some of the modern versions that are very suspect. And you can look into some of these men uh, who I would question not only their uh, translation ability, but even their, their spiritual credibility, their salvation, their, their uh, movement of God in their lives. To me, I, I would have some real... Uh, suspicions of a person who comes out in their own writings and statements uh, and makes heretical statements that prove that they're not even a believer, not even converted to Jesus Christ, and yet they would handle the scriptures. There's a man named Dean Bergon who put out a, a series of books to support, a series of, of writings maybe call it, to support the King James and his title was very intriguing to me. He called it Unholy Hands on the Scriptures. And what he was saying is that he was, he was very alarmed by some of the modern versions coming out that uh, by men and women, for that matter, uh, who did not have a good credible testimony in Jesus Christ, who probably, at least by what their words, were not, e were not even saved people. And can you imagine God's holy word coming off, uh, uh, coming by the hand of people who you could not even be sure they were converted to Christ? Uh, I have some real, uh, some real reservations about that. Well, let me go to my third and final point. So the manuscripts, the, the men of the, uh, of the King James, I think, were superior to uh, any modern group, at least. And, and, and I would put them up against any translation committee or team in the history of English versions, and that is, again, part of the reason why I respect what they did. Um, but then let me go lastly to the message of the translation. Um, the King James, in my uh, humble opinion, uh, maintains some of the cardinal doctrines of the faith in a much more clear, a, a much more uh, dominant way than some of the modern versions do. Now, I've already said that I do not think the modern versions change doctrines. I do not think that they leave out doctrines, and all the major doctrines are upheld in even the modern versions, but, but uh, a preacher I heard years ago said this, and I liked what he said. He said, would you like to have less or more ammunition on the front lines if you're in a battle? And I would say, I'd like to have more ammunition. 
And as I look at some of the ways that the new versions have changed verses and taken out verses and made alterations and left things out or here or there, um, I have to support the King James renderings of these passages because I think they, they maintain in a clearer way, a, a more uh, strong way, these doctrines that I hold is, is important. Let me give you an idea what I mean. And these are, these are well documented in other books, and I'm not going to even try to get deeply into this. But to give you a, an idea. Now, again, the reason these statements or words or whatever are removed or changed from the modern versions is, again, their textual family, their manuscript evidence, their text family they use, the, the newer Nestle Island text, does not contain these words, and so that's their justification for not putting them in or taking them out or, or changing them. Now, you have to make the same conclusion I, I had to, to decide, do you think those words should be there or should they not? And is there enough evidence to support the case for removing them? I know the other side of this. I'm not naive. There's people who will say, hey, you King James people, why don't, why don't we just believe that the King James added those 20 verses in instead of the NIV or others taking them out? Hey, that's a valid question. You're going to have to decide that for yourself. I personally think that those ver verses that are removed from the modern version should not have been removed. And I have some strong reasons for that, not only mainly because the manuscript evidence supports it, but the text itself supports it. And there's some real problems when these words have been removed. Let me give you an example, and I'll have to bring this to a close. I don't want to go too long today. But in Matthew 1, 25, here's, here's just one small example. It says about Christ after he was born of the Virgin Mary, and knew her not, Mary, this is Joseph, not having sexual relationship with Mary until after Christ was born to remain, her to remain pure and her virginity to be kept intact. It says, and he knew her not till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now that word firstborn is removed out of most of the modern versions, or at least questioned in the footnotes as if it should not be there. And evidently there are a few uh, my, uh, a minority of manuscripts that do not have the word firstborn there. But that word has a lot of importance, uh, especially for a former Catholic like myself, because the Catholic Church uh, maintained the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is bogus and ridiculous. The Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches she had other children biologically with Joseph. She had at least four sons, uh, four sons named in the text, and at least two daughters, girls is given, or daughters, and so, uh, when you take out firstborn, it's hard to maintain that idea of her not being a perpetual virgin, but having other children naturally after that. One word, but a, a really big meaning behind it. Uh, how about 1 Timothy 3.16? 1 Timothy 3.16 is a very important Christological passage, a passage that uh, supports the deity of Christ. And here's what it says in the King James. You'll know these verses if you know your Bible very well. It says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, it says some other things following that, but this is all I need to stop with and, and talk about. That phrase, God was manifest in the flesh, is one of the clearest statements of the deity of Christ anywhere in the Bible. When was God manifest or appeared or made known or was brought forth in the flesh? Well, only in Christ. But the new versions 
replace the word God with the word he. And if you read it with he, it's he was manifest in the flesh. It's not the same as saying God was manifest in the flesh. You know, he, even a Jehovah's Witness who denies the deity of Christ and the Trinitarian idea of God, they don't deny that there was a person named Jesus Christ that came in the flesh, but they don't believe in the word God or would not want the word God to describe him as being God manifest in the flesh. One word, yet a big change. How about something you can find in John 7, verse 8? This is a tiny little word change. These are just single words. I'm not even getting into the whole verses, and I already listed where you can find those whole verses being removed or, or at least questioned in, in the modern versions versus the King James. But there's a, there's a passage in John 7 and verse 8. I don't want to go deeply into the whole story, but it was Jesus going up to one of the feasts, and because he was being uh, uh, attacked and his life was in danger, he kept from going up to the feast for a time and then went later. But let me read John 7 and verse 8. And this is Jesus' brethren. By the way, his natural brothers. This goes back to the firstborn thing. He did have natural, well, you can call them half-brothers. You know, they were born from Joseph and Mary. He, as God is his father, but Mary was the human instrument to bring him into the world. So his, his, his human brothers, you might call it, uh, here's what they said to him. Um, they asked him earlier in the text if he was going to go up to Jerusalem to the feast. Now, here's what uh, Jesus said to them in verse 6. My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. And he basically told him he wasn't going up then. But now, notice what verse 8 says. Here's Jesus speaking again to these brothers who've asked him, are you going to go up to the feast? Go ye up unto the feast, this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. The word yet is an important little word in verse 8. Jesus said in the King James, I go not up yet unto this feast. But in verse number 10, it tells us he does go up to the feast later. So the word yet is crucial there because in verse 10 it says, but when his brethren were gone up, then when he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now here's the problem. In many of these new versions, the word yet is taken out of the text. that has Jesus saying, I go not up unto the feast. But if you remove the word yet, you basically have Jesus telling a lie. Because, or changing his mind at the least, at the worst case, lying, because it says he, he did go up. And in fact, I believe he always did plan, up, plan to go up uh, because he never missed a feast in, in all of his ministry because he was an observant Jew and so on. Here's one word being taken out. Um, I can refer to things like the word fornication in 1 Corinthians 6.18. The King James uses the word fornication. It's replaced with the word immorality in modern versions. I don't think that's as strong. It's not nearly as clear. If you put immorality, you leave it up to the, uh, to the definition of the reader who he or she might give their own definition of immorality. If you ask a homosexual or you ask a, a person in some deviant sexual lifestyle what immorality is or what is immoral and not immoral, they would have a whole different view of immorality than a Christian might or a person who, who believes in biblical marriage and biblical sexuality. But the word fornication nails it. You can't change that. It's a strong use of the word. Uh, how about the word, speaking of homosexual uh, sin, how about the word sodomite? The word sodomite uh, 
in the Old Testament, now we're back to the Old Testament, is found in Deuteronomy 23.17 and 1 Kings 14.24. But in the modern versions, it changes the word sodomite to shrine or cult prostitute. Well, I'd like to know if anybody knows what a shrine or cult prostitute is anyway, but that's not even the main point. My main point is, if you change sodomite to some other definition or title, um, you lose exactly what God is trying to say there about the sin of homosexuality. Uh, see, these are slight changes, I know. And again, they make up this 2% that there's so much debate about. And, and again, for the sake of a, an in-family discussion among brethren, these things are important. And so, I, I just want to end today by saying, you know, the manuscripts, the, the men behind the King James, and the message of the King James versus these modern versions is part of the reason why I have still decided to stay with uh, the authorized version. Well, by next week in our episode, I'll move further into some of my final uh, thoughts here and kind of sum up, uh, I think, in some points that often aren't made in this argument or in this controversy that I think need to be made. And I want to try to bring those out next week. I appreciate you listening. I know it's been a little long. This is a big subject, so bear with me. I hope you'll tune in again next week to our episode. Remember, conviction for truth and compassion for people. 